Please sit comfortably, everyone. So, good morning to those of you in the room with me and those on screen. Um, this Dharma talk I'd like to give today is um, uh, revisiting a koan I gave a talk about, I think, a few years ago. And uh, it's a very well-known koan called Rinzai's Person of No Rank. And I'll read the koan to you first. There is one true person of no rank, always coming out and going in through the gates of your face. Beginners who have not yet witnessed that, look, look. Then a monk came out and asked, what is the one true person of no rank? Rinzai descended from the rostrum and grabbed him. The monk hesitated. Rinzai pushed him away and said, the true person of no rank, what a shit stick you are. <laughs> and um, here we see Rinzai's typically um, take no prisoners style of, of teaching. But let's just uh, look at the koan first and break it down. There is one true person of no rank. In other words, there is a person who has no status, always coming out and going in through the gates of your face, going in and out of the senses of your face, your eyes, ears, nose, um, mouth, etc. Um, look, look. And then a monk came out and asked, what is the one true person of no rank? A reasonable question to ask. Rinzai descends from the rostrum and grabs him by the lapel. <clears throat> the monk hesitated. So when the monk hesitated, that was the, 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 the response or the body language back from the monk that led to him making his um, challenging response back again. What did the hesitating mean? Kind of meant doubt, thinking, like who is this person of no rank? Mm -hmm. um, Rinzai was challenging him to come forward with something else that would perhaps indicate some insight or, or at least um, awaken him to some kind of insight. And then the coup de grace, when the monk hesitates, he pushes him away and says, what a shit stick you are. In other words, a, a statement of low rank to be a shit stick. Again, this is Rinzai's um, take no prisoner style. Um, and he's a bit of a ruffian, but um, one imagines he has a heart of gold um, and it's his tough love approach of trying to wake us out out of our um, preconceptualized ways of viewing ourselves and viewing the world. Whether we think we're superior or whether we think we're inferior or whether we drift between the two, which a lot of us often do. So this koan is addressing a well-known um, social phenomena that pervades all of our lives in one way or another, which is about status. Do you know, when you reflect on it and when you observe it in human nature, across, you know, work, at home, you know, neighbourhoods, uh, just being out in public, um, you recognise that um, a lot of social life is about seeking status or avoiding being of low status. It, it really does pervade everywhere. And it pervades, pervades the way we 
we dress, the car we drive, the house we have, the suburb we're in, the ideas we have, the lifestyle we have. Um, it, it is actually quite pervasive. And uh, there was a very good book written many years ago called Status Anxiety by Elaine de Botton, who is a philosopher. It's a very good book, very good book to read to get an insight into it. And basically saying that human beings are driven by status as a way of surviving. Like if I can be more important than other people or I've got more resources or whatever, then I increase my chances of survival. Mm -hmm. But the kind of the inner drive towards status is um, if I have higher status, then I'll be loved. Uh -huh. That seems to be at the core of it. Um, and if we don't feel like we're lovable or we're loved, it may drive us more and more to get status beyond what we need to survive or even what we need to be loved. It's a kind of a false way of, of getting love. But it's a survival mechanism that, that many people have unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, it seems to me like most um, true paths of religion and spirituality, take for example um, Christ or the Buddha, started from people who seemed to have some genuine insight into the unconditionality of life and recognising there's no superior and inferior. And they recognised that their true nature was, was neither of those things in this relative world, in the conditioned world. And they got outside the whole need for status. That's what the whole idea of deconstructing the ego is. You know, it's like you, you just get outside of status. You see that there's another way of being in the world that doesn't involve status. When the Buddha says that Buddha nature pervades the whole universe, everything has Buddha nature. There's no status from that unconditional point of view. But from a relative point of view, there is. And where it seems that a lot of religions and spiritual traditions go off on the wrong, wrong path is that someone, the, the, the founder, has this initial insight of no rank, um, no ego, unconditionality and as people join and as it gets bigger and bigger it attracts people who want status you know and so you know you get clergy and laity and within clergy you get priests you know and you get abbots and popes or Dalai Lamas whatever and I'm not saying all those people are necessarily caught up in rank but it's easy to get caught up in rank and power and status and sometimes that status is used wisely and in many cases that we see, it's abused or used unwisely. So institutions can grow into something, religious institutions, spiritual institutions, can grow into something which is quite opposite to what the founder intended it to be. But then again, status is a hard thing to... Um, it's a tricky thing, uh, and it can be sneaky. <coughs> And people can also be of a spiritual disposition, you know, and want to be humbled, you know, or, or not have status. But even that can create its own status. And to give an example, in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, teachers like myself and other teachers don't use the word Roshi as a title. 
you know, we try to have no rank, have no title. But even that is something that you could cling to as being superior. Oh, we're better because we don't call ourselves Roshis. You know, we're beyond all of that, right? That becomes another subtle form of superiority. So you really have to dig deep into this to really let go of that superior, inferior kind of egotism that can creep in to to practice. Mm -hmm. But like all practice, it's very simple and it comes back to being just what is in front of you, what's right in front of your nose at the moment, what's coming in and out of your senses right now. That is the person, that is the man, woman of no rank right now. Now, in the, in the real world, in the relative world, one confusion we should clear up here is that it's possible that all of us, you know, um, it's something in our lives that we do very well. Um, and in terms of averages, we maybe do, we do it better than other people. We might be more intelligent than most people statistically. Um, or better at some kind of skill like playing a musical instrument or dancing or sport or whatever. And, and in a relative sense, there's an accuracy in that, right? We, we might have a very good skill at actually doing something. Uh -huh. um, but the problem becomes when because of that particular skill you, you have, where you may have a a superiority in, in playing the flute or whatever it might be, or the piano, you then think that you're superior globally across all of your, all aspects of your life. Like you're just superior because you're good at that. Mm -hmm. And that's where it becomes problematic, when it becomes globalised. And I see a lot of people in my private practice often who are people who um, are very successful in their life um, they're, very, they're either very wealthy or they're very intelligent in terms of being academically well-credentialed and they pride themselves on their intellect and they have a kind of a, their identity of superiority is around their intellect or their, their IQ to be more specific. Um, and it creates a lot of problems in their life because they're often coming in to see me because their relationships are falling apart. And I um, gently try to point out to them um, that there is various kinds of emotional intel of intelligence, like emotional intelligence. And intellectual intelligence doesn't equal emotional intelligence. But that's a kind of an example of the kind of trap we can get into when we think that we're good at one thing. Um, so it makes us superior to others in a, some kind of global sense. But yes, it's important to acknowledge if you are good at doing something, you're good at doing something. That's just the fact of it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to have an ego attached to it, you know, or a diminishing of others that goes along with it. When you break it down, there are many different forms of status in a culture. It's not just one-dimensional, but the, the more obvious ones that we see in people striving towards, in Western cultures anyway, is the more money you have, the more superior you are. The more power you have, the more superior you are. The more sexually attractive you are, 
the more superior you are, or your strength, or your sporting ability, or your intelligence, or your popularity, like, or like I said, a special skill in performance or whatever. That's, a, that's the more kind of popular version of where status lies, or apparent status, but it can also have different variations as well. There's some people who don't give a hoot about all of that stuff. They don't measure status in those ways. And there's another dimension of, um, of status around eccentricity, um, being a non-conformist, being artistic, um, voluntary poverty. People can make, also make a, a social status out of that as well. It's being different in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and also, as I was referring to before, people in spiritual practices like Buddhism or Christianity or Islam or whatever, um, the, the, the inner teaching is to get beyond ego and status, um, but it sets up its own kind of status in itself that was kind of spiritually superior to others. Well, some people feel like they're morally superior to others. Yeah. Just, they've got this higher standard, so it makes them superior across all aspects of their life. It takes on many different forms. But to recognise how pervasive this is, and I've suggested this as an everyday practice to do many times, but it's worthwhile mentioning again. Just sit while you're waiting for a train and, and notice how automatically your mind can start go to judging people and labelling people. Um, he's too fat. You know, he, he's, not, he, he's got very poor dress sense. Mm -hmm. He looks like he's arrogant, you know. The, the mind constantly labels and labels and it's basically labeling and dividing the world up into superior and inferior and it's very important that we we look at whether we how, how we do that or how how habitually we may do that and then it's a good practice just to notice it to see that's occurring and step back into this witnessing non-judgmental person of no rank that just witnesses people as they are going past you, sitting down. It's possible to do it, just witness them and there's not, you're not adding on this extra dimension of good or bad, better or worse, they're just people going by. It's a really good practice to do. Um, it's a, it's a, it really informs our practice to do that. <clears throat> Perhaps um, one of the drivers of needing to be superior is a sense of insecurity um, and the psychological research that's done into this. Do you know that the more insecure the person, the more need for status seeking to sort of prop up their, their sense of, of who they are. Um, and often make what we see as status seeking may actually come from a sort of a, an innate feeling of, of unworthiness that may be there, which drives it all the time. Mm -hmm. And if that's what's there in our own, 
own nature, if we notice that we're seeking some kind of status, it's important to go back to that sense of vulnerability and, and, and stay in touch with it, because that's where the key is to transforming this. Again, coming back from the outer shell of power and status back into vulnerability and approaching it and being present to it is, is always the, the pathway of practice. <coughs> Many people would say um, that I, many people would say, like a lot of people who would come to Zen practice would, would say, I, I, I don't actually, my problem is I, I don't feel superior to other people. There's many people who think that actually their, their identity is, is that they're inferior to others and they have this global sense that they're inferior um, across various different aspects of their life. Um, and that can create a lot of suffering for people when they do that. But it's still, it's like whether you feel like people who come across as being superior tend to be the ones who annoy us the most because they're snobbish and narcissistic. Uh -huh. But people who have low self-worth, in a sense, are suffering from the same problem. It's just the inverse of it. It's like the head and the tail of the same coin, because you could only feel unworthy if you had some comparative idea in your mind that others are worthy or better than you, right? And then the solution is, is to try to become like other people, like climb up the, the pole so you can feel better about yourself. But it's all part of this conditional relative world of better and worse, good and bad, do you know? The solution is to go from worse to better. You're still in the same problem, right? There's no, there's no end to it. And it's like a, a hall of mirrors or a labyrinth. There's always going to be someone better than you. Comparison is, um, comparison is a way of being in the world which will be endlessly suffering. There's no, there's no way out of it when you keep on comparing. It'll always end in tears in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, a lot of well-meaning ideas, like with particularly with children, you know, to increase their self-esteem and so on, which is to boost them up all the time, doesn't really work because there will still be a status hierarchy there to deal with. So, the the Zen approach to this problem, and I, I believe the approach of all true forms of of spirituality, is we all, we're always touching base with the unconditional. In the, in, when you see things from the unconditional point of view, there's no better or worse. There is no status. Mm -hmm. There's no worthy and unworthy. They're just ideas, concepts, relative concepts. You just get, you see through that to the true nature of the way things are and the way you are. So let me go back to the koan. You know, um, imagine you're the monk who comes out in front, who's got the courage to come out in front, you know, of the assembly and say, who is this person of no rank? And your teacher comes down and grabs you by the lapel and shakes you. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What would you do to demonstrate to him um, where this person of no rank is? I'll leave that with you to ponder over. Mm -hmm.
but you can respond to this. It's not just a, a question that has no response. It's a question that has a very definite response. And the way this flows into everyday life, most importantly as a way of ending, is that if we realise the person of no rank, not only does it lead to an unconditional kind of friendliness towards ourselves, it leads to an unconditional friendliness in the way that we relate to others. And if you're outside of that relativity of superior and inferior, you can, you're not afraid to look people in the eye and shake their hand, people who are socially superior to you. And you're not condescending to people who are socially less worthy than what you are. It's a kind of a, a, an unconditional friendliness to all people um, that you come into contact with. So there's a lot to practice with that. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>